invite you to take your copy of the written word of God and open with me to the 90th Psalm, Psalm 90, and we're just going to be looking at this Psalm together today. As you're turning there, just let me thank you for coming out on a New Year's Day. I was uh, visiting with my mother yesterday over the phone. She lives in another part of the state, and she says, my church doesn't meet on New Year's Day or, or Christmas Day. And I understand that, that that's happening, and it's not that we are in judgment of other churches that have chosen that path, but we just see the Bible says, let us not forsake gathering together, and what better way to gather on Christmas Day than to celebrate and think about Jesus coming and taking the form of man, and what better way to start your new year by gathering for church. And so... I don't know about you, but I need you, and I think you need us, right? And we need to be under the Word of God and to be preaching. And I know that it's a busy time. Um, Probably some of you will be having a Christmas party or a gathering later today. We'll be hosting a party as soon as the service is over. And I invited all of our family to come for church today. I don't see any of them here, so I will be preaching two messages today. (laughs) One way or another, they're going to church, all right? So look with me at Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mounds were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, And it is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom, Return, O Lord, how long have a pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may reject and be glad all our days. Make us glad for many days as you have afflicted us and for many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Father, as we look at this word and we contemplate the truth in this song, there is an urgency to live out the days that we have before us. We don't know if we'll make it through this day. We don't know if we'll make it through 2023. And I pray that as we, as we contemplate, as we listen to what this psalm is saying to us, that there would be a, a stirring within us to make these days count for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want us to consider a message. 
perhaps you can help me get this started. The slides, uh, Ralea, um, on number our days. Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was one of the great preachers of American history in the 1700s, one of those preachers that is known for the Great Awakening, he was saved at around age 18. In less than a year, he was a pastoring a church there in New York City. And, and while in New York City, he began to write out resolutions. Not New Year's resolutions, but just guidelines of which he would live his life. Like the first resolution he wrote out was, I'm resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to, be, to glorify God most. The fifth resolution that he wrote down was, I'm resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. And he is known for saying this, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That is a theme that we see here in Psalm 90. Lord, teach us to number our days. As we think about this New Year's Day, I I think a day on this calendar allows us to reflect to the previous year, but also to look forward to the year ahead. Where am I going? And am I on the right track? Well, let's consider now Psalm 90. First, as we look at this psalm, we understand that it is the oldest of all the psalms in the Psalter. Moses is the one who wrote this psalm. You see that there above verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. It is said there of Moses in the Scriptures that he spoke face-to-face like a friend to God in Exodus 33, verse 11. Let me give you a little bit of a setting here of where this psalm is coming from. You might remember that Moses was raised up to lead God's people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And if we were to look at Numbers chapter 13, Numbers 14... God's people decided to set out 12 different spies to look over this new land. And when those 12 spies came back, 10 of them said, this is way over our head. The enemies there are too large and too fierce. There's no way that we will be able to claim this land. And Joshua and Caleb said, but our God is bigger. We can go in and get it. But the majority won out that day. And as a result of their disbelief, God said, you, this entire generation, will not be permitted to enter that promised land. If you speed ahead to the 20th chapter of Numbers, there you learn that Miriam, that's Moses' sister, dies in the opening verses. It's also that In in Numbers 20, where Moses strikes the rock out of anger, and as a result, he will not be permitted to enter the promised land. And by the end of that chapter, his beloved brother Aaron is also gone. He dies. It's believed now that Psalm 90 is written following these events, where the die is cast, And God's people will be wandering in the desert for 40 years. And I don't know about you, I'm not much of a journaler, but when I journal, it's often when times are difficult. And so I can imagine Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sitting down at a campfire, looking out at a landscape of a mountain, and beginning to write out this, these words that we see here in Psalm 90. Let's first consider the, the first six verses. And that is that God is personal and he is eternal. Look at again, it says in verse 1, Lord, 
You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses had the responsibility of leading all these people. But his trust was not intense, nor was it in the defense of armies, but it was in God. He said, God, you are our dwelling place, not only in our generation, but in all generations. Even during Noah's day and Abraham's day and Joseph's day, you have always been one that will provide for us and protect us and guide us. He is personal. But not only this, we see that he is eternal. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It could be that he was sitting at a fire, and he was looking at the horizon of a great mountain that was in front of us, and he said to himself, and he wrote, God Even before that mountain existed, you were present. God, unlike me and unlike my fellow man, we are bound to time. We have to live in the present. But you know our past, our present, and our future. You are an eternal God. And verse 3, God, you return man to dust. And say, return, O children of man. Now this, this sentiment there in verse 3 is reinforcing what it says in Genesis 3 verse 19. A part of the curse of sin is he said to man, you are dust. And to dust shall you return. And we see this being lived out. Every day in our world where men and women are passing away, are returning to dust. Just think with me in this last week of some of the celebrities that have gone on. Pele, this famous Brazilian soccer player. At a time, the best soccer player in the world. How about Franco Harris? a masculine football player for the Pittsburgh Steelers that caught one of the most famous catches in the history of football. How about Barbara Walters? One that has been looked up to and said, now there, women, is, there is one that you can follow. And how about religious figures? Pope Benedict XVI. He too has passed away in recent days. And we don't need to look in our newspaper or, or online. We can look right around our church, can we not? Let me think of our good friend Lana. We think of John Naskoviak, Gary Naskoviak's father, that will have a, a funeral tomorrow. It's all a reminder. It's all a reminder that we are returning to dust. God is eternal. Verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Now, I can't get my mind around this idea that a thousand years to God is just like one day. But I can if God's not bound to time. And I'll tell you something else that I'm learning, and many of you are, are, are far advanced in this than I, is that the older I get, the faster time seems to go. And uh, there certainly was a time as a child, as a teenager, I'm like, when will the school year end? But now I'm like, when will this time ever slow down? I mean, I'm old enough to know that I'm going to blink and it's going to be New Year's Day again, 2024. And what would seem as to be a long time, a week, a month, a year, to five years, it doesn't seem all that long. And if you've lived forever, then I imagine a thousand years don't seem very long either. And so there's some metaphors here. A thousand years was like a watch in the night. A watch was like a shift of military workers. 
They would stand guard for about three or four hours. Well, that's what a thousand years is like to God. Another metaphor in verse 5 is like a flood in the, in the, in the desert where a torrential downpour would happen and there would be a flood that would sweep across the desert land. But they would be here and gone swiftly. And a dream in verse 5, it's like, I just looked it up this morning, we, we dream about three to five times throughout the night. Well, that's what a thousand years is like to God. Or like grass. I'm not sure that metaphor translates too well in the Midwest. But in, in the desert land, where one would wake up and the grass would be just full of wet dew. And then by the afternoon, it would be scorched by the burning sun. That's the metaphor that's provided for us. It just goes so fast. In verse 6, in the morning it flourishes and it is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. So here's the first truth that we see in the first six verses of Psalm 90. God is personal, and God is eternal. Now, he's going to build his message on that. And by the way, if you were going to write a song, it'd be wise for you to start with God. (laughs) And that's what Moses does as well. I'm reminded of a professor I was a professor at Princeton University, if you can imagine that. At one time, it was a theological seminary. His name was Professor Robert Dick Wilson. And he would go to chapel. And at times, there would be some returning preachers that went to school there at Princeton, and they would come back and they would preach. And there, Professor Wilson would sit, and he would listen to a message. And one day... Dr. Donald Barnhouse, of whom we've quote from this pulpit from time to time, who was a Presbyterian minister from the church there at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, was preaching. At the end of that message, Dr. Wilson went up to him and he said, I come each chapel to hear some of these old preacher boys that come and preach, and what I come to listen for is if that preacher is a big godder or a little godder. And I'm glad to hear, Dr. Barnhouse, that you are a big godder. Dr. Barnhouse said to himself, what do you mean by that? He says, well, some men have a little god, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of inspiration and transmission of the scriptures. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little god. I call them little godders. Then there are those with a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You, Donald, have a great God and he will bless your ministry. And he paused and smiled and said, God bless you and walked away. For Moses, he was a big godder. His God was eternal and his God was personal. Now that stands in contrast To man. Because what we're going to see in verses 7 through 11 is that man is sinful and frail. As Moses is writing this psalm out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins with God, and then he's going to contrast that with man. Sometimes that's helpful. I can think of times where I've driven a vehicle and it's made some noise in the front, and I've taken it to a mechanic, and the mechanic walks me out of the waiting room and he says, Now, let me show you this front tire here, and he'll, he'll press on it, and it doesn't move at all. He says, you see how that doesn't move? Now, let me take you around to the other side of the vehicle. And he grabs a hold of either, tire, either side of the tire, and he goes, wobble, 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 wobble. He says, now it's supposed to be like that, and it's not. So now we need to fix this. And we are the wobblers, loved ones. Listen to what it says here in verses 7, 8, and 9. For we are brought... To an end by our anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You see, whereas God has no end, in verse 7, we are brought to an end because of our sin. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, out our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. God You have no end. You are holy. Conversely, 
We're, we're, we're frail. We're sinful. We stand under your wrath. And that wrath still exists today. We not be, may not be experiencing the wrath of disbelief because we voted against going into the promised land. But Paul tells us in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We are all sinners. And we stand under the judgment of God. What one might say, what, what, weren't these people in a covenant relationship with God? Some of them were. But remember what Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. They were experiencing the consequences of their disbelief. And they were wandering in the desert now for 40 years. Man is sinful and frail. Look what it says in verse 10. The years of life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And we fly away. Sounds like another song, doesn't it? Now, he is not making this law here that says that man is only going to live to be 70 or 80. What he is offering here is a a poetic estimation. But he is contrasting man with an eternal God that says we might get 70 or 80 years. And then it says there, it says that in verse 10, that we will soon be gone. And those days, according to verse 10, will be Days of toil and trouble. Now you might be saying to yourself, Chad, it's New Year's Day. Goodness gracious. The tone of this psalm seems so negative. Well, I want to remind you the setting of it. If you were wandering in the desert for 40 years and you were attending one funeral after another, well, you would be reminded that God is eternal. And that man is sinful and frail as well. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So here's what we got through the first 11 verses. God is eternal. Man is frail. He's he's wasting away. His days are numbered. There is appointed unto a day to die once. And then to face the judgment. Now, sometimes in a passage, we have to look for an application. Other times, it's inserted right in the passage. So let us consider the application here. As it says there in verse 12, so. Now, that's a really important word. In light of God being eternal, in light of man being frail, so. Teach us to number our days. The word teach there, it implies that to number our days does not come natural for us. We squander our time. We don't realize that we only have a certain amount of time on this earth. Therefore, Moses, upon reflecting on God's eternal nature and man's frailty, prays, teach us to number our days and not number our years because we're not promised years. Help us to number our days. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that we're to consider what today is, January 1st, and go back and, and number all the days that we have lived? If so, there's a very helpful website called countcalculator.com. I did it this morning. I've been alive for 18,071 days. And if that's what this application means, then I've got it filled, right? But it isn't what this application means. It means like Jonathan Edwards, to pray, God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs, to be resolved not to waste a minute that we have remaining. Medieval scholars it is said, would have a skull 
either on their desk or, or on a shelf in their study. And it would remind them that the end of their life was coming. Churches would have cemeteries. And Farmer Brown and his wife Molly could look out on a Sunday morning and say, one day, that will be us. Right next to Henry and Susie. What will we do with the days that remain? It says here, teach us. Why? Look at what it says there in verse 12. So teach us the number of our days. That we may get a heart of wisdom. Is there anyone here that wants to be wise? Is there anyone here that wants to know God's ways? Is there anyone here that wants to live out God's ways for the rest of their life? Well, this is what Moses, this is what God's word says here in Psalm 90 verse 12. Well, then we have to number our days. We have to give thought to how much we have. Now, I stand before you on January 1st. And you might say to yourself, I've got, I've got 365 days this year. But will you just think with me for a moment about that? You're going to sleep a third of that time. Most of us in this room are going to do a third of either school or work, of things that you really don't want to do. You're going to commute there and back. You're going to be waiting in traffic. You're going to be waiting in line. You're going to literally be sitting in waiting rooms. You're going to be waiting for telemarketers or or to be on hold to try to get through to talk to someone. You might think you have 365 days. But it doesn't take much to pare that down to say, I really got got about 90 days, 100 days. And so we're being challenged this morning to be thinking about Lord, help me to number those. I don't know how much time I have remaining. So help me to maximize that. So are there any helps found here in these remaining verses? I think there are. The first thing, what it means to teach us to number our days, is to receive God's mercy. Look at what it says there in verse 13. Return, O Lord. How long have pity on your service? Now the word return was used in another place in verse 3. The word return there meant return back to dust. But the word return in verse 13 is referring to return, bring your mercy to your people. And church family, I, I hope you understand by now that Psalm 90, as well as every chapter in the Bible, whether New or Old Testament, is not just a book of wisdom that teaches you how to live. It's not God is eternal, man will live short, now maximize the days. If that's all you get out of Psalm 90, then I have failed at teaching this. Because we ought to be looking at Jesus now. And where is Jesus in Psalm 90? Because every verse has a trail and a road that leads to the cross into an empty tomb. Well, we began this psalm by saying, The Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible that came and dwelt among his people? John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the one, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what we celebrated during Christmas, that we have one that has dwelt with us. We've been talking about how God is eternal this morning. Can you think of anyone else that is eternal in the Scriptures? It is said of Jesus in Colossians 1, verse 17, He is before all things. God, in verse 2, is before the mountains. Jesus, in Colossians 1, verse 17, is before all things things. And he was preaching one day, and there were some opponents talking about Abraham. And Jesus said in John 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, what? I am. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. We find here in, in Psalm 90, verse 13, that the people need a Savior. They need mercy. And mercy has a name, and he is 
Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes me, though he die, yet shall he live. Listen, if you want to number your days, let's get off to a really good start. The most important thing you can do today is to receive God's mercy. If you have never trusted Christ, then the wrath of God is over you. He has made a provision for you. Jesus took your wrath. Cry out to him. Beg him for his mercy to get what you don't deserve, that you would be born again, that you would be saved. You want to you live out wisely. You want to number your days. The most critical thing you can do is to receive God's mercy. The second thing is to be satisfied. And glad in God's steadfast love. Again, look at what it says there in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. I want to bring you back to the setting. Why would you pray such a thing? Well, if you were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years and you had the responsibility of leading the people for protection and provision and for guidance, do you think it was Groundhog's Day for him every day doing the same thing over and over and over again? Consequently, as he is numbering his days, he says, may I find satisfaction in your steadfast love. May there be gladness that comes with the task that is before me. Be satisfied. We don't move from this, loved ones. If we want our days to count, we not only receive God's mercy, but every day we reflect on that mercy. We begin our day by remembering his steadfast love. And we live in that steadfast love. Our satisfaction. Why in the world would I chase after the things that are so fleeting in this world that I know will not satisfy? You want to number your days. Build your life on the steadfast love and on the mercy that is provided through Jesus. And then, then go where he leads. And the third thing that we see here, if you want to number your days, is to know the work that God is leading you to and to do it in his strength. Look what it says in verse 16 and 17. Let your work, not my work, does anyone know what it's like to work on your own deal and not God's work? Look what it says in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. If ever there were a generation that had squandered their time, it was this generation... Psalm 90 that he's writing to, they're wasted their time. And he's saying, I don't want to do that. My days are too short to waste time. I want to take the work that you've called for me and apply the spirit that's going to strengthen me to carry it out. I do not want to work in vain. What are you calling us to do? We want to apply our lives to that. A great preacher named G. Campbell Morgan said this, Satisfaction, gladness, success, and work must all come from right relation of man in his frailty to the eternal Lord. What is it that God is calling you to do? I don't want to make this mysterious today. 
Because if you are a child of God, I can say with confidence what he has called you to do. As I was meditating on this passage and getting ready uh, to preach last night, I'm not going to lie to you, I really wanted to watch football. But I was thinking about, teach us to number our days. And I'm like, I don't want to waste my time. Lord, I want to be able to preach your word to the people. I was laying in bed, and my mind went back to a servant. A servant that has preached from this pulpit, served as a professor at the seminary I went to, Dr. Roy Fish. And Dr. Fish shared a story that I'll never forget. And I think I just want to end with this story today. I, I, I do warn you it's a bit lengthy but I think you'll find out that it is worth me reading. And we're talking about committing ourselves to the work that God has for us. Listen to this. This all started a number of years ago in a Baptist church in Crystal Palace in South London. The Sunday morning service was closing, and a man stood up in the back and raised his hand and said, Excuse me, Pastor, uh, can I share a short testimony? pastor looked at his watch and said, you have three minutes. The man proceeded with his story. I just moved into this area. I used to live in Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives and I was walking down George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney? Going right through the center of the city from the center business area to the rocks, the old Colonial Harbor area. A strange little white-haired man stepped out from a shop doorway put a pamphlet in my hand and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one ever has asked me that. I thanked him courteously, and all. I went home to London, puzzled. I called a friend, and thank God he was a Christian, and he led me to Christ. The Baptists love testimonies like that, and everyone applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship. Now, that same Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide, Australia, the next week. And ten days later, in the middle of a three-day service in a Baptist church of Adelaide, a woman came up to him for some counseling. He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. She said, well, I used to live in Sydney. And she got a, just a couple of months back, I was visiting some friends in Sydney, doing some last-minute shopping down on George Street. A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was so disturbed by those words. When I got home to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block for me. I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So I'm telling you that I'm a Christian. The London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice in two weeks, he had heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in Mount Pleasant Church in Perth. When his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal. And he asked the elder how he got saved. Well, I grew up in this church from age 15. I never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everyone else. Because of my business ability, I grew up in a place of influence. I was on a business trip to Sydney, Just three years ago, and an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of the shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with the question, excuse me, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth. I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize, but he agreed. He had been disturbed for years, knowing I didn't have a true relationship with Jesus, and he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. The London preacher flew home and was soon speaking at a Keswick convention in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of the teaching series, four elderly pastors came up and explained that they too had been saved between 25 and 30 years ago, through that same little man on George Street 
offering them a pamphlet and asking that same question. The following week, he flew to a similar Keswick convention in the Caribbean for missionaries. He shared the same testimonies. And at the close of that teaching, three missionaries came forward and said that they too also had been saved between 15 and 25 years earlier by that same little man's testimony. They were asked the same question on George Street in Sydney. Next, he stopped in Atlanta, Georgia to speak at a naval chaplain convention. Here for three days, he spoke to over 1,000 naval chaplains. Afterward, the chaplain general took him out for a meal and asked the chaplain how he became a Christian. It was miraculous. I was raiding on a naval battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercising in the South Pacific, and we docked at Sydney, harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross as a sinful nightclub with a vengeance. I was blind drunk, got on the wrong bus, and got off in George Street. And as I got off the bus, I thought I saw a ghost as this man jumped out in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? The fear of God hit me immediately. I shocked sober, ran back to the ship and sought out the chaplain. He led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. And I'm now in charge of a thousand chaplains who are bent on soul winning today. Six months later, that same London pastor flew to a conference for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote part of northeast India. At the end, The head missionary took him to his humble little home for a simple meal. He asked how this Hindu came to Christ. He said, I grew up in a very privileged position. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission, and I traveled around the world. I'm so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and his blood covering my sin, because I would have been very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. One period of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. I was doing some last-minute shopping, laden with toys and clothes for my children. I was walking down George Street when a courteous, white-haired little man stepped out in front of me and offered me a pamphlet and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my home, sought out a Hindu priest. He couldn't help me, but he advised me to satisfy my curious mind. I should go and talk to the missionary in the mission home at the end of the road. This was good advice because that day the missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism immediately and began to prepare for ministry. I left the diplomatic service and here I am today by God's grace in charge of all these missionaries who have led a 100,000 people to Christ. Eight months later, that same London pastor was preaching in Sydney, Australia. He asked the local Baptist minister if he knew of a little, elderly, white-haired man who had handed out tracts on George Street. He replied, oh, yes, I do. His name is Frank Jenner. And although I don't think he does it anymore because he is so frail and elderly. Two nights later, They went out to meet him in his little apartment. They knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail old man greeted them. He sat them down and made them tea. He was so frail that he was sloppy, slopping the tea into the saucer as his hands shook. The London preacher sat there and told him all these accounts from the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks, He told him his story. This was a story. He says, I was raiding on an Australia warship. I was living a reprobate life. In a crisis, I really hit the walk. Or rather, I really hit the wall. One of my colleagues, to whom I gave literal hell, was there to help me. He led me to Jesus. And the change in my life was night and day in 24 hours. I was so grateful to God. 
I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength, I did that. Sometimes I was ill and couldn't do it, but I made up for the days I missed at other times. I wasn't paranoid about it. I have done this for over 40 years. In my retirement years, the best place was on George Street, where I saw hundreds of people a day. I got lots of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the track. And in 40 years of doing this, I have never heard one single person coming to Jesus until today. That simple little man had witnessed to perhaps 147,000 people in that time period. You know, I would say it was sheer commitment to show gratitude and love for Jesus, to do that for 40 years and not hear of any results. I think that God was showing that Baptist pastor from London was just the tip of the, the tip of the iceberg. Goodness knows how many more people had been arrested for Christ and were doing huge jobs out in the mission fields. Mr. Frank Jenner died two weeks later. Can you imagine the reward he went home to in heaven? I doubt his face will ever appear in a Christian magazine. I doubt there will ever have been a photograph or a write-up in Billy Graham's Decision magazine. No one except a little group of Baptists in Sydney knew about Mr. Frank Jenner. But I tell you, his name was famous in heaven. Heaven knew Mr. Frank Jenner. And you can imagine the welcome in the red carpet and the fanfare that he received when he went home to glory. Our days are short. God is eternal, and we are not. God, would you teach us to number our days? Help us to receive the mercy that Mr. Jenner talked about. Help us to live in satisfaction of his love. And may we be about the work that he has called us to. All of us are called to this work of sharing the gospel with people. And let us just rely on his strength to do it. But may we make the most of the days that he has granted. On Friday night, there was a funeral in this room. This coming Friday, it could be my funeral. It could be your funeral. And I'm not being morbid. I'm being biblical. I think that's what we see here in Psalm 90. Would you pray with me? As the music team comes, I just got to believe that this is a time for us to do some inventory. If you haven't already, during your New Year's season, have you reflected on the direction of your life? Are you living in light of eternity? Are you satisfied in Christ? Do you know the work that he's called you to do and with his strength are you stepping into it? Are you living like you just have a few more days? That's not just a message you need to hear. I need to hear it as well. And we're just being called back to this. Would you just take some time right now and say, hey, it's the first of the year. What better way to close out this message by just praying? And just pray that to him. I'm not eternal. You are. I'm frail. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass away. So, so... In light of that, would you teach me to number my days? You pray that.
I think the, the first way we can apply that is to receive the mercy of God. Friend, have you ever come to a place of understanding that God is holy? He is eternal. Are you aware that you've sinned against this holy God? And because he is holy, because he is good, and because he detests that sin so much, that you will be judged for that. But do you realize that he loved you so much that he sent his own son to take your wrath? He did that by going to the cross for you. He died and he was raised to life three days later. And now there's mercy. There's love that's available to you and you don't have to work for it. Would you, like you would a present, reach out and say, I'll take that. I want to apply it to my life and I want to live for this great God all of my days. You could pray that right where you're at. You don't need me to do that. Just say, I believe. I beg for your mercy. Have mercy on me. And as we consider this dear man's story from Sydney, Australia, his story is going to look different than ours. But it was clear that there was work for him. And what work is God for you? Lord, would you reveal that? Let us, let us not spin our tires and, and feel burdened about that. Help us to do the clear things that you have laid out for us in the scriptures. Getting to know you, being satisfied with you, being filled with your spirit, being a dad that, and a mom that raise their children in the ways of God being a husband that loves his wife as Christ loved the church, being the very best worker that we can in our workplace, loving our neighbor as ourselves. May we be about that work and spare us from the trivial, time-wasting endeavors that this vanity fair, this world that we live in, is seeking to pull us into. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. And I just say it again. Please teach us to number our days. In Jesus' name, amen.